Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is Week 27, Numbers Chapters 22, 23, and 24. Last week, we began the story of Balaam and Balak, a story that takes three full chapters of Numbers 22, 23, 24 in the telling. And we see from its timing and its structure and its style that it is almost certainly an embellished account of an actual happening. An account of a very real event that gained legend status among the Hebrews and it's all intended to get across some very important theological principles. Now let me be clear when I say an embellished account, this is not a fairy tale. This is not come from somebody's imagination. But it does have elements added to make the telling of the story memorable and thus more easily transmitted from mouth to ear. We might say that it has a folk theme to it. The thing we have to keep in mind is that in only two places in the entire Bible do animals ever receive a voice. The serpent in Genesis and the donkey in the book of Numbers. And the two figures couldn't be more different in their nature. The serpent was Satan himself. He was no ordinary creature, no run-of-the-mill snake that had become possessed by the evil one. Rather, it's made clear that this creature defined as a serpent in Genesis was a totally unique being. For we're told that no creature of the field was the equal of that satanic serpent. Balaam's donkey, on the other hand, really had no such spiritual connection or special status nor was it the product of a, of a special and unique divine creation. It was simply a common donkey that is said to have spoken, and Balaam didn't seem all that impressed or surprised by it. Now, I maintain that this is one of the key elements of the story that helps us to recognize that over time, the actual historical events involving Balaam and Balak and Israel in this story became exaggerated and eventually succumbed to the standard Middle Eastern use of talking animals, commonly used in their tales and traditions. In other words, this story is yet another type of the many types of literary devices employed in the Bible, but one that we are to recognize as theologically based Hebrew fable, just as the Hebrews do. What I'm telling you in all this about the nature of this story is not at all controversial. Ancient and modern Bible scholars, Jewish and Gentile, are in general agreement on what I've just told you. Now, in this narrative, Balak is the current king of Moab, and Balaam is a Gentile diviner and a prophet who lives up in western Mesopotamia, in a place that's right on the border between modern-day Syria and Turkey, 
along the mighty Euphrates River. Now, King Balak has three million Israelites on his doorstep. And he's pretty worried that his army isn't going to be able to defend his kingdom if Israel's intentions are hostile. So Balak does a very usual and normal thing for that era. He hires a professional sorcerer to help him out. The key to victory, at least Balak believes it is, is to get the gods to side with King Balak and with Moab and to fight against Israel. In biblical terms, King Balak wants to have somebody put a curse on Israel so that they can be defeated. And the king's choice to curse Israel is a well-known, well-known seer named Balaam. He's a gun for hire. Now, while this story is less historic and more Hebrew fable in its style, in its style, the amount of theology and prophecy it contains is astonishing. As we're going to see, it has wondrous messianic overtones to it that are undeniable as well. Now, perhaps the foremost principle that we've uncovered, we first uncovered in our last lesson, and it's a real important one, is that being inspired of God to prophesy for him does not mean that one necessarily has a righteous standing before the Lord. God has used pagan kings and pagan prophets to achieve his will in the past, and he will do it again. Jehovah has made direct contact with heathens uh, and instructed them to say or to do something and they have obeyed. Yet they are neither redeemed, saved, nor have they been declared to have right standing with God. What this means is that a man who is a false prophet can at times be accurate. He can at times be given a vision of the future by God himself in order that the Lord achieves some inscrutable purpose known only to him. In some ways this makes it all the more difficult for a believer to judge just who is a man of God versus who is a man who walks apart from God, yet outwardly seems to be in fellowship with him. I I wish I could give you a nice checklist of just how to make that determination. But you know what? I'm in the same boat with all all other believers. And this means that I and you need to study all of God's word diligently to help us be able to recognize God's pure ways versus other ways that really only mimic his ways to a degree. And in order that we can recognize his divinely authored patterns versus doctrines of men that use all the right buzzwords and tend to give us nice, warm, fuzzy feelings. Now remember, we're told that Satan, the most evil, pure evil, being in existence, can disguise himself as an angel of light. 
Therefore, a person can be so deceived that they honestly believe that God anoints them when in fact they're being used as a counterfeit tool by the evil one. Or, just as likely, they followed their own evil inclination. So just because a person says all the right things and claims to be speaking for the Lord, don't just assume that he or she is. Here's the test for a person who says that the Lord came to them and they have a word for you. Today, well, let me back up. They can't ever be wrong. How many people do we know that run around saying that? If they've ever been wrong, you need to push them out here. That's the test. 100% accuracy. That's a tough test. Now, when I use the word prophet in one sense, it means someone who's predicting an event that hasn't happened yet, or foretelling the future in some way. A prophet in that sense is also someone who says that the Lord came to them and has a word for you. Now today, and at times in the New Testament, the term prophet is also used in the sense of simply meaning a, a teacher of Holy Scripture. And believe me, anybody who teaches is going to make a mistake. Example number one, right up here. But the biblical prophet, that other type of prophet, the Old Testament type of a prophet, is a seer. One who is in right standing with the Lord. And one who sees only because he's been given a message directly from God, not in his own power. Therefore, that message can never be an error. Okay, Let's continue with our story of Balaam and Balak by rereading a portion of Numbers 22. Open your Bibles to Numbers 22. We're going to start reading at verse 9. That will be page 175 in your complete Jewish Bible. God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me this message. The people who came out of Egypt have spread all over this land. Now come and curse them for me. Maybe then I'll be able to fight against them and drive them out. God answered Balaam, You're not to go with them. You're not to curse this people because they're blessed. And Balaam got up in the morning and said to the princes, of the lock, return to your own land because Adonai refuses to give me permission to go with you. Well, the princes of Moab got up, returned to King Balak and said, well, Balaam refuses to come with us. Well, Balak again sent princes, more of them, higher status than the first group. They went to Balaam and said to him, here is what King Balak, the son of Zippor, says, please don't let anything keep you from coming to me. I will reward you very well. Whatever you say to me, I'll do. 
So please come and curse this people for me. Now Balaam answered the servants of Balak, Even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I can't go beyond the word of Adonai my God to do anything, great or small. Now please, you, you two, stay here tonight so that I might find out what else Adonai will say to me. God came to Balaam during the night and said to him, If the men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Bilam got up in the morning, he saddled his donkey, and he went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger flared up because he went. And the angel of Adonai stationed himself on the path to bar his way. He was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of Adonai standing on the road, drawn sword in hand. So the donkey turned off the road and into the field. And Balaam had to beat that donkey to get it back onto the road. Well, then the angel of Adonai stood on the road where it had become narrow as it passed through the vineyards and had stone walls on both sides. And the donkey saw the angel of Adonai and pushed up against the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against the wall. So he began to beat it again. And the angel of Adonai moved ahead and stood in place, so, in a place so tight there was no room to turn either right or left. And again the donkey saw the angel of Adonai and lay down under Bilam, which made him so angry that he hit the donkey with his stick. But Adonai enabled the donkey to speak. And it said to Bilam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Bilam said to the donkey, It's because you've been making a fool out of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand. I'd kill you on the spot. And the donkey said to Bilam, Look, I'm your donkey, right? You've ridden me all your life, right? Have I ever treated you like this before? No, he admitted. And then Adonai opened Bilam's eyes so that he could see the angel of Adonai standing in the, in the way with his drawn sword in hand. And he bowed his head and fell on his face. And the angel of Adonai said to him, Why did you hit your donkey three times like that? I've come out here to bar your way because you're rushing to oppose me. The donkey saw me and turned aside these three times. If indeed she hadn't turned away from me, I would have killed you by now, saved it alive. And Balaam said to the angel of Adonai, I have sinned. I didn't know that you were standing on the road to block me. Now therefore, if what I'm doing displeases you, I'll go back. But the angel of Adonai said to Balaam, No, go on with the men. But you were to say only what I tell you to say. So Balaam went along with the princes of Balak. We'll stop there. Well, in he- typical Hebrew storytelling fashion, verse 9 has Yehovah asking Balaam the Gentile diviner a rhetorical question. Who are these men with you and what did they ask you to do? God, of course, knows what's been going on here. But he establishes a direct dialogue between the Gentile seer, Balaam, and the God of the Hebrews. Three times in the Bible, three times, does Jehovah appear to non-Hebrews to warn them off from doing what they're, they've intended to do to his chosen people and all three times are recorded in the Torah. The first is with King Abimelech when he was going to take Abraham's wife Sirah for his harem. 
The second was with Jacob's uncle on his mother's side, Levon, who, like Balaam, is a Mesopotamian, by the way, who was heading up a posse that was pursuing Jacob and his family as they had fled Levon's control. Balaam truthfully recounts what had been transpiring the past few days of his life, and, and it is that these men came to him, asking him to come with them for the purpose of cursing an army of people who had just come out of Egypt. And the ultimate purpose of that curse was so that King Balak could defeat these foreigners who vastly outnumbered his army. But Jehovah countermands the king of Moab's intention by telling Balaam he can't curse his people Israel because they're already blessed. It's too late. Now, What exactly does it mean that they can't be cursed because they're blessed? See, this is referring back to Genesis and the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham that was next handed off to Isaac and then finally handed off to Jacob called Israel. The covenant is always termed a blessing. Always. And the Lord is in essence saying, first of all, Look, it's utterly impossible to curse that which he has blessed from a spiritual sense. In other words, nobody can reverse what Yehovah has determined. Second, from an earthly physical sense, to curse God's people by means of attempting to impede them or, or harm his blessed people are only, is only going to bring divine retribution upon the one or ones who do that cursing. God's advice? Don't do it. Now, even though Balaam's thought was that he would go with these men, do a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, and pronounce a curse upon the Israelites, and then go home with a whole pile of money for his efforts, Balaam was never going to hang around and be a part of the coming battle. Balaam, so far as we know, wasn't even a violent man, other than whacking donkey a little bit. Balaam had no intentions of personally persecuting the Israelites, personally doing harm to them. Balaam had been asked to intervene by a king who presented a good story and an even better promise of a king's ransom of money. And by the morality of that day, Bilam would do what he was asked to do and then just kind of wipe his hands clean of what are followed because after all, he was just kind of a mercenary of sorts. He wasn't pro-Moab. He wasn't necessarily anti-Israel, personally. He had no dog in this fight. Didn't have any particular interest in the outcome. He was only doing his job as a professional diviner. He had no personal agenda or, as he thought, no evil intent. Balaam was trying to be morally neutral, kind of like the UN. The problem is that to Jehovah there is no such thing is moral neutrality. 
That condition is a figment of men's fertile imaginations. Further, whatever one does to impede or harm God's people is an offense to God, no matter what role, big or small, you might play in it. For Abah, a person is either for or against. As Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. There is no middle ground. So it is with cursing Israel. To not acknowledge Israel's untouchable blessing is identical in God's eyes to actively cursing Israel. Balaam can't just do his job for Balak, then leave and absolve himself from responsibility. Being a spiritual man and being aware that he had most definitely encountered a god, Balaam tells the delegation sent by King Balak that he, he can't go with them because, and I quote, Yehovah will not let me go with you. That's right. Even though most of our Bibles will say the Lord or Adonai will not let me go or some such thing, the original Hebrew employs God's formal name. The Lord told Balaam, a Gentile sorcerer, his personal formal name. But understand, for Balaam, this didn't mean that Jehovah was his only God, nor his family God, nor even the only God in existence. It just that this particular God, who was at least one of the gods that seemed to have an interest in the Hebrews, made it pretty clear to him what he must do, what he must not do, and that was good enough for Balaam. But neither men with evil intentions nor Satan with his temptations give up and go away never to bother God's people again just because of one Rebuff. So when King Balak gets the word that Balaam said no to his offer, he tries again. And this time, Balak sends personal representatives of a higher status than who went before, and he sends more of them to try and persuade Balak to come. They tell Balaam, we'll increase the money. Balaam explains it's not a matter of money. He's supposedly not doing this just to get a higher fee. Then as the story builds in tension, we find in verse 18, Balaam explaining that he is fully under the command, and again I quote the original Hebrew, he's under the command of, Yehovah my Elohim. Well, anyone hearing this story, or reading it and studying it like we are right now, would have to conclude that Balaam was a God-fearer. That he held some sort of allegiance to Yehovah. Yet as the story continues, and in other books of the Bible where more details are added, it's affirmed that Balaam is simply a spiritualist. Certainly he believes in Yehovah, just as he believes in some unknown number of other guys. In fact, Balaam was actually boasting here. 
He was trying to impress this delegation of high government officials from Moab with his intimacy and influence in this invisible realm of the gods. And particularly with the god that most concerned Balak's immediate problem, the god of the Israelites. See, this Balaam was a very good salesman. Now, being a good salesman was important not just with his customers, but also with the gods that he dealt with in his profession. So in verse 19, Balaam, who really wants this gig, he really wants this king's ransom of payment that goes with it, he tells this second group of men that have come from the king out to stay the night that he's going to consult with God about this matter again. He says, you know, let me find out what else the Lord will say. Balaam is used to bargaining. He's used to having gods change their minds. Why would this Jehovah be any different? In fact, this whole procedure of negotiating with the gods is the basis of divining. Negotiations with the god in question continues until the hoped-for omen is finally received. The diviner's motto was, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Now notice also that while in the first part of the story the Lord came to Balaam unexpectedly and in some manner in which Balaam was fully awake and conscious, now Balaam is going to try to summon God in the more usual manner, manner of diviners in a dream, or in an unconscious vision. And interestingly, Jehovah doesn't disappoint. Now let me point out that generally speaking, receiving something from the Lord in a dream was considered to be an inferior method of divine inspiration as compared to what the Lord's appointed prophets experienced. It's not that a dream was something to be looked down upon, but it paled in comparison to the type of ecstatic and fully conscious contact Jehovah's prophets experienced. And, and, and there were precious few prophets, by the way, of that particular kind. Now, as far as we know, the Bible tells us the full extent of those who were God's prophets. We don't, we're not aware that there were any others. And as far as we know, wow, the Bible tells us the full extent of those who were, who were. And this is why I pointed out earlier that the title of prophet can be applied in two very different ways, on two very different levels of intimacy with God. The prophet who's chosen to be God's personal mouthpiece over an extended period of time, bringing forth a, a direct and a new oracle from the Lord, and the second type is more along the lines of the New Testament type, of someone who teaches God's Word, and to a degree interprets or provides commentary on what's already been given by the writers of the Scriptures. Loosely speaking, again, this second kind of prophet is like a teacher. Now verse 20 says, that God indeed came to Balaam in a dream and tells him that now it's okay to go with his contingent of men from Moab if they ask him to. Yet we quickly find that God isn't pleased. 
that Balaam wants to go with Balak. Go to Balak, rather. And here we have a clear example of God operating within men's free will. Balaam was determined to go. Balaam was a diviner who only knew the way of all diviners. And that meant negotiating with the God until you got what you wanted. Now let's think this through. Why was Balaam going to Balak despite the Lord insisting that Balaam was not to do what it was that Balak was hiring him to do? In other words, if the excuse is, well, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to do anything. Hmm. I mean, are we to take it that Balaam simply wanted to personally deliver the bad news to Balak? They didn't curse Israel? Maybe Balaam just wanted to go all that distance at somebody else's expense and get all the frequent flyer miles. I mean, are we to assume that Balaam would travel more than a couple of hundred miles, walking at times, riding on the back of a donkey, just to go home empty-handed because he had no intentions of accepting the job? Hardly. Balaam just wasn't through negotiating with Jehovah yet. After all, Balaam had now received permission from God to at least go to Balak. Certainly the next step in his mind would be that the Lord would finally allow Balaam at least some leeway in cursing Israel. Tell me, don't we sometimes tend to do that? I mean, we know full well that the Lord's will is that we're to do or not do something. But we go right ahead with our plan anyway. We inherently know that Jehovah is unlikely to strike us dead in the middle of whatever it is we're set out to do, and often we're no worse for the wear. And we've achieved whatever it is we set out to do. At other times, things go horribly. (laughs) And we realize that we ought to have listened to the Lord all along. This is the effect of free will and our using it in a way that's not in harmony with God. So we find Balaam riding on his female donkey, headed towards Moab, accompanied by his two assistants. Suddenly God shows up in the form of the angel of Jehovah. And amazingly, Balaam doesn't see the angel of the Lord, but the donkey does. And now we learn something more about Balaam. In reality, he's utterly spiritually blind. He knows all this great stuff. But he's blind. He can't see the angel of the Lord standing in his path, blocking his way. His donkey, who does see the Lord, swerves off the road, down into the fields, afraid of this sword-wielding apparition. The supposedly super-spiritual Balaam is utterly oblivious of the reason for his donkey's actions, and so he beats that donkey to get her back up into the road. A few feet farther, the Lord stations himself in a very narrow spot on the road with a fence, meaning a wall of piled stones 
on either side and afraid the donkey tries to back away from this fearsome angelic apparition and in doing so catches Balaam's foot between her side and that stone wall now Balaam's no longer just merely irritated he's in pain so he beats that donkey some more to get her to release his foot and to continue a few more feet and the path becomes so narrow the donkey couldn't go around the angel of the Lord so in self-defense her knees buckle and down she goes right on the spot Bilam now completely lost his temper and began a terrible beating of his poor frightened donkey that had done the only thing it could do under the circumstances. Now let me tell you, animals behaving strangely were omens to even the most novice of sorcerers. That Balaam completely ignored this animal's behavior is meant to show his absolute determination to do what it was that he set out to do. Disobey the Lord and get that money by cursing Israel. I suppose I could stop and tell you a couple of cute anecdotes about all this. What this ought to mean to us. But I don't think I need to. Because right about now we're all thinking. Wow. How many times I've tried to go around or through the Lord. And it brought nothing but pain and grief. There's that misuse of our free will again. Still completely blind to what's actually going on. The Lord enables the donkey to speak and the donkey asks Balaam why he's beating her. In other words, hey stupid. Can't you figure out that something extraordinary is going on here? Have I ever behaved like this before? Haven't I been a good faithful servant to you? And Balaam admits the donkey has a point. Suddenly now that Jehovah has Balaam's attention by means of this talking donkey, Balaam sees this fearsome figure with the sword standing before him and so Balaam drops in panic to the ground. Now the shoe's on the other foot. The Lord asks Balaam why he keeps treating his donkey like this. He points out that in fact if it weren't for the donkey doing the right thing, the Lord would have used that sword not on the donkey but on Balaam. Told you last week this was a Bible within a Bible. Okay, husbands and wives, parents and children, did you catch just what went on here? Did one of you ever want something so much? The other one said, "Uh uh-uh, no. You just knew that taking that new job, even though it meant moving, selling your house, even though the family was very happy where it was, or buying that new car, even though there was really nothing wrong with the old one, was exactly the right thing to do, but your spouse or parent just wouldn't agree and it just nicks the whole thing? I'm not saying that the one who behaves as a roadblock is the one with the good judgment. I'm saying that when something like that happens, maybe it's wise to stop and take pause. Stop, look around for the Lord in all this. Maybe it's merely the reaction of a spouse or a parent that just doesn't like change. 
or one who always wants to control. Or maybe, just maybe, it's the Lord using that intransigent person to stop something he doesn't want done. And you're utterly blind to it all. And he's trying to save you from either a terrible mistake that your runaway and selfish desires just can't accept, or perhaps you're being saved from his discipline that some of us would rather not even believe he uses. Well, in verse 32, the Lord repeats that he finds what Balaam is doing in going to King Balak obnoxious. And Balaam replies, but he still doesn't get it. And he says, oh Lord, I was so wrong not to see you on that path. I was so wrong to beat my donkey. I just don't know what came over, way, came over me. And by the way, if you still disapprove of me going to block, well, okay, then I won't go. Still disapprove? The Lord just told him that he found his going to Balak obnoxious. See, Balaam is pandering here. He's doing the Texas two-step. He's groveling and trying to manipulate. Gee, Lord, maybe it's not that you don't want me to get a new SUV. It's just you don't want me to get a new red Toyota SUV. Would blue be better? God, would that be all right? How about a Ford? Oh, this really starts to meddle on our lives, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I wish you could see what I see standing up here. All these faces looking down and shuffling feet. The Lord, the creator of free will, allows Balaam to continue to exercise his. And so says that Balaam can continue on to Moab. But he says, remember, don't you say one thing to King Balak that I don't tell you to say. Well, Balaam is ecstatic. He says, all right, I'm making headway. All right, and off he goes to meet, meet King Balak. Let's read a little bit more about this. Start at verse uh, 36 of chapter 22 and go on to the end. Well, when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab at the Arnon border in the farthest reaches of his territory. And Balak said to Balaam, I sent more than once to summon you. Why didn't you come to me? Didn't you think I'd pay you enough? And Balaam replied to Balak, Look, here, I've come to you, but I have no power of my own to say anything. The word that God puts in my mouth is what I will say. Well, Balaam went with Balak, and when they arrived at Kiryat Hutzot, Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep, then sent Balaam and the princes with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. And from there, he could see a portion of the people. Well, King Balak hears that Balak is finally coming, and he gets so anxious to, 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 to greet him that he runs out and tries to get him going right away in his task of cursing Israel. I mean, he goes all the way to the northern border of Moab just to welcome him. And as one of such regal importance might do, King Balak chides Balaam a little bit and wants to know why he took so long to accept his offer. Don't you believe I'll pay you? 
And Balaam, being cautious because of the donkey incident, says that while he is here, he really can't do much of anything other than to speak what God tells him to speak. Well, King Balak is undeterred. He prepares a grand feast in honor of his this sorcerer that's going to help him fend off the Israelites. Now, let me point out that it was the ancient belief that if a seer and a diviner agreed to curse somebody, and he did it, there was no question but that that curse was efficacious. It was going to work. Both the cursor and the cursee believed it. So Bilak's concern wasn't whether this curse might work or not, but rather... Mm, sorry. A lot of radio interference tonight. That's what that is, by the way. But rather, would Balaam actually do this thing? Considering his reluctant attitude about it, at least up to this point. Now, don't, no doubt, the Middle Eastern mind of King Balak figured that this was all simply Balaam's way of up, up in the ante. Well, after the proper protocol of whining and dining, this famous Mesopotamian magician, Bilak escorts Bilam up to a high hill from which they could see some of the people of Israel at their encampment. The place they went was called Bamot Baal. Right? This means the altar or high place of the god Baal. Now, they didn't do this out of curiosity or just to go get a nice panoramic view of the Hebrews. Okay. A curse was only effective when the cursed person or object was in view of the one doing the cursing. That's why it was necessary for Balaam to come to Moab in the first place. Otherwise, Balaam's emissaries could simply have loaded up with silver and gold, taken it up to Carchemish, where Balaam lived, and had him perform it right there. But no, he had to go to Moab because the way of the diviners were, you had to see what it was you were cursing. Well, let's move on a little bit into chapter 23. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here, prepare me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam said, then Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering while I go off. Maybe Adonai will come and meet me. And whatever he shows me, I'll tell you. He went off to a bare hill. God met Bilam, who said to him, I prepared the seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Adonai put a word in Bilam's mouth and said, Go on back to King Balak and speak as I tell you. Well, he went back to him and there standing by his burnt offering, he went with the princes of Moab and he made this pronouncement. Balak, the king of Moab, brings me from Aram, from the eastern hills, saying, Come, curse Jacob for me. Come and denounce Israel. Now, how am I to curse those who God has not cursed? How am I to denounce those whom Adonai has not denounced. From the top of the rocks I see them. From the hills I behold them. 
Yes, a people that will dwell alone and not think of itself as one of the nations. Who's counted the dust of Jacob or numbered the ashes of Israel? My, may I die as the righteous die. May my end be like theirs. And King Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? To curse my enemies is why I brought you here, and here you've totally blessed them. And he answered, Mustn't I take care to say just what Adonai puts in my mouth? The number seven, as a divine number of great significance, was neither the invention nor the sole province of Israel. It was a commonly held and used number in ritual throughout the known world. Listen to this short excerpt from a clay tablet found from the old Babylonian era. That means Abraham's time, a little before it. it says this, At dawn in the presence of A, Shamash, and Marduk, who were all Babylonian gods, you must set up seven altars, Place seven incense burners of cypress. Pour out the blood of seven sheep. Goes on and on. And Ibn Ezra points out that the number seven is of course often used in the ritual calendar of the Hebrews. Seven day week. Seventh day Shabbat. Seven weeks Shavuot. Seven years sabbatical years. Seven months. Seventh month for the special biblical feast. Seven sprinklings of the blood of the red heifer towards the tabernacle. On and on and on. And why wouldn't it be so that the number seven as a cultic number of special significance was common throughout the Middle East? The Lord set down seven as an important pattern from the moment he created the heavens and the earth. That mankind had perverted their worship, adopted false gods, twisted and misused rituals, did not mean they had forgotten everything that had been taught to them by Noah and then handed down. They just used it as a foundation to fashion their own religions now. Therefore, the ritual we find at the beginning of chapter 23 is what would be expected of a Mesopotamian sorcerer like Balaam. Seven bulls and seven rams sacrificed on seven altars, much like we just read from that ancient Babylonian tablet. Well, after the animals had been slaughtered, their carcasses were burning on the altars, King Balaam instruct, I rather, Balaam instructs King Balak to stand beside those altars because he's going to go have a word with God. And Balaam tells the Lord that he has sacrificed on the seven altars and naturally the Lord doesn't reply because he didn't instruct him to do this. Rather, the Lord ignores Balaam's attempt at appeasement and he instructs Balaam as to what he is to go back and say to King Balak. Balaam goes back to where the king had been standing by those burnt offerings where the king's court was standing there dutifully beside him, and he pronounces what Bilat thought he had been waiting for. Give it to me. And in a nutshell, 
Balaam says that even though King Balak brought him here to curse Israel, no man can put a supernatural curse on that which Jehovah has blessed. And as much as that must have infuriated the king of Moab, Balaam goes on to prophesy a glorious future for Israel. He basically restates God's promise to Abraham that in the Hebrews he will have this nation for himself set apart, not counted among the rest of the nations, that's going to multiply into uncountable numbers. But something else is also said that succinctly makes a point that we've discussed in this class on numerous occasions. There is Israel, then there's everybody else. Or as it says in verse 9, yes, a people that will dwell alone or better apart and not be reckoned as among the nations. To review, what this says is that an Amim will dwell apart and not be reckoned as among the Goyim. Here we see that an important transition has been made. Israel is henceforth referred to biblically as God's people, his Amim, and all other people on the planet, Gentiles, are called nations, Goyim. Goyim is no longer a word that means nations in general. It now specifically means Gentiles or Gentile nations. It no longer includes the Hebrew people or Hebrew nation. So here is a Gentile seer who has been instructed to make it clear to all mankind that Israel is entirely different from everybody else in Jehovah's eyes, not better than Gentiles, but distinct from Gentiles. Even the standard vocabulary of calling Israel a nation no longer applies. So separated does the Lord see his chosen from the rest of humanity. And to cap it all off, Balaam says that it will be a blessing for him as a Gentile. And in essence, for all mankind, if they can somehow find righteousness in the eyes of the Hebrew God and die of that knowledge of blessing. This wasn't quite what King Balak expected to hear. And obviously frustrated and flabbergasted, he says to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you here to curse my enemies, Israel, and instead you've blessed them. And Balaam replies, I I can only say what Jehovah tells me to say. I told you that when I arrived here. Well, King Balak, of course, figures that the clever Balaam is simply once again trying to raise up the price. So he says to him, okay, let's go for another try on another hill for you to curse Israel from. Maybe you can get it right this time. We'll take up that story next week.